following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and make your way to chapter 4 this morning. Proverbs chapter 4. This morning we are continuing our series of sermons that I've entitled Keeping the Heart, which is based on Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. This is the third message in this series of sermons, and I've entitled this message The Kind of Watchman we must be, the kind of watchman we must be. I'd like to begin by reading Proverbs 4.23 in your hearing, and so as always, it's with a sobering sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-giving, faith-sustaining, heart-refreshing words of the triune God. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. The more I study and read on this all-important subject of keeping the heart, the more convinced I am that it's impossible to exhaust our study of this matter. And I think that's because the heart of man is as wide as the east is from the west. I think it's because the heart of man is as high as the heavens are above the earth and it's as deep as the ocean floor. Psalm 64 verse 6 says that the inward mind and heart of man are deep. The word suggests something mysterious, something unfathomable. The heart is so deep. The heart is so unfathomable that we are told time and again that only the omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe is able to search and penetrate and know the thoughts and secrets and intentions of the heart. And the thought of that ought to humble us, knowing that within each and every one of us, there is a vast universe. There is an unfathomably deep ocean Another reason I'm convinced that it's impossible to exhaust our study of the heart and how to keep it is because of everything the heart is capable of doing and producing. On the third day of creation, when God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, that was just a faint hint of what he would create on day six of creation when he would fashion the hearts of Adam and Eve. Even as God packed so much potential and possibility into each and every seed, did he create it on day three? 
the potential and possibility that he packed into the hearts of Adam and Eve are beyond comparison. Think of one tiny seed that you can hold in the palm of your hand. That seed has the potential to grow into something so massive that it can stop a high-speed truck dead in its tracks. Or think of the divinely designed process of photosynthesis, wherein leaves on a tree draw in water and carbon dioxide and utilize energy from the sun and produce chemical compounds that in turn feed the tree. And as the byproduct of this chemical reaction, the tree produces and releases oxygen into the air. And it's proposed that one large tree can provide a day's supply of oxygen for up to four people. And all of that potential and all of that possibility has been packed into one tiny seed. One tiny seed can produce a tree and an orchard that produces fruit in which other seeds are born that can produce more trees and more fruit and more orchards to sustain more people for more generations. Think of the potential and the possibility that God packs into one tiny seed. And yet, dear friends, that's nothing compared to the hearts that God fashioned and planted in our first parents. Those hearts prior to the fall and prior to being enslaved by sin had so much potential and possibility for good. Those hearts were capable of naming every creature on the face of the earth, as well as filling the earth, subduing the earth and exercising dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And most importantly, those hearts that God planted in Adam and Eve were packed with the potential and possibility of spreading the knowledge of his glory and expanding Eden to the ends of the earth. But sadly, their hearts and subsequently the hearts of every one of their descendants were subdued by sin. And now, instead of doing and producing good, by default, our hearts are inclined to evil. We still have all of the creative faculties that God initially implanted in the heart. But as Romans chapter 1 says, we, by nature, use that creativity to find and invent new ways of sinning and satisfying our fallen passions. Apart from the regenerating grace and power of the Holy Spirit, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Apart from the new birth, where we receive the gift of a new heart, we are told that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. Yet all the potential and all the possibility is still packed into the heart of man. But tragically, apart from God's sovereign work of regeneration, all of that potential and possibility has been hijacked by sin and Satan. And yet the good news is that in regeneration, God replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and thereby replaces our hatred for God with love for God. So now instead of our default inclination being to gravitate towards sin and unrighteousness, we have hearts that by default long for God 
and long to see him glorified and exalted in the earth. And so now in Christ, the potential and possibility of our hearts to do and produce good is regained and restored. Nevertheless, the potential and possibility to do and produce untold disaster and devastation remains because until we are glorified with Christ, the presence, power, and pull of indwelling sin remains in us. Scripture teaches that our hearts are capable of being trained in godliness. In terms of our love for God and our obedience to God, our hearts are capable of being enlarged. The psalmist prayed, I will run the course of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The heart is capable of being enlarged. They're capable of obeying God and doing the will of God. Scripture teaches that our hearts can be encouraged. They can be joyful. They can be thankful. They can be comforted. They can be refreshed, reassured, strengthened by grace. Our hearts can be directed to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In the exercise of the ordinary means of grace, as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer, our hearts, as in Psalm 45.1, are able to overflow with a pleasing theme as we address our praise to the King of Kings. And depending on how much of God's word we deposit into our hearts, our hearts, according to Psalm 16, verse 7, are able to instruct us in the night. They're able to instruct us in the night as we pack God's word into them. All of that and so much more is packed into our hearts. But if we're going to be real and if we're going to be honest this morning, on the other hand, our hearts are also capable of becoming unfeeling like fat. Our hearts can grow dull. They can become dark. They can become indifferent. They can become impenitent. Our hearts can become deceived according to James 1.26. They can become hard. They can become closed off to God and to others. They can become filled with doubt and unbelief. Our hearts can be proud. They can be lifted up. They can be arrogant. They can be haughty. Jesus taught that evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, murder, Slander and everything else that can defile a person comes from the heart. In other words, if we fail to keep our hearts with all vigilance, our hearts can bring ruin to our reputation and disaster to our marriages and destruction to our families. All adultery begins in the heart. And because the heart determines what comes out of the mouth, the heart is able, as James 3.6 tells us, to set the entire course of life on fire. All that potential is packed into the heart. For this reason, and countless others, you and I, as the people of Christ, are to prioritize the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. Last time we were together, we considered what it means to keep and guard our hearts with all vigilance and we concluded that that the call to keep the heart is a call to maintain the heart it's a call to preserve the heart it's a call to carefully observe the heart 
to tend the heart the way a farmer tends his crops, to watch over the heart in a jealously protective manner the way an ancient watchman looked out from the city's watchtower. That's what it means to keep the heart. The call to keep our hearts is a call to man the walls of our hearts, to not only look outwardly for incoming enemies, but to look inwardly for the treacherous sins that rise up in order to take the city of our souls. And secondly, we concluded that the call to keep the heart with all vigilance is a call to keep our hearts in our care and in our custody. To guard our hearts with all guarding, to keep them with all keeping. It's a call to set a strong watch over our hearts. It's a call to give ourselves to the service of our hearts. And as we learned from the word all, just before the word vigilance there in Proverbs 4.23, we are to do this with complete vigilance, with total vigilance, with wholehearted, comprehensive vigilance. It seems to indicate constancy, persistence, that the vigilance we're to exercise is something that is ongoing, something that is unrelenting, something that is uninterrupted. In other words, the sobering truth that this verse is teaching us is that as long as we are in this present evil age, there's never a time for us not to keep and guard our hearts. Even on our best day, we are to guard ourselves. We are called to guard them until our dying breath because sin does not sleep it's always at the door satan does not rest he never ceases to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour the world doesn't cease to pump out distractions and abominations to poison our hearts and our minds and as peter said in chapter 2 of his first epistle the lusts of the flesh never cease to make advances against our souls. So in light of this, I want to consider this morning the kind of watchmen we are to be if we are to effectively keep our hearts in our care and in our custody as God commands us. The fact of the matter is that since God has appointed each and every one of us to be the watchmen over our own hearts, we need to know the kind of qualities and the kind of characteristics that we should be striving for and actually walking in as divinely appointed watchmen over our hearts. As with everything we do in the Christian life, in terms of obedience, in terms of service, or any kind of task or ministry, it all begins with who and what we are internally. What we do is empowered by who we are. In other words, if we are to prioritize the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times, we are to prioritize even before that the pursuit and cultivation of certain qualities and characteristics and certain practices that will enable us to keep and guard our hearts effectively. I mentioned previously that God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. I mentioned that during the time of the Mosaic Covenant, God appointed the Levitical priesthood to keep guard over the tabernacle. And we are told here in Proverbs 4.23 that God has appointed each and every one of us individually as watchmen to keep and guard the fountain of our hearts. 
And in order to do this and to do it well until our dying day or until Christ returns to call us home, we need to know the kind of watchman we must be. We need to be aware of the characteristics and the qualities that must define and govern our lives if we're to be effective watchmen over our hearts. And as I survey the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible, I find that there are at least 10 things that ought to be true about us as the people of God if we are to succeed for the glory of God in keeping our hearts until the end when we are finally and eternally glorified with Christ. You see, not everyone was allowed to be a watchman on the city walls. For instance, you wouldn't appoint a blind person or someone who is hard of hearing to watch out for the city. You wouldn't appoint someone who struggled to stay awake, struggled to stay alert. You wouldn't appoint someone whose loyalty and allegiance to the king and the kingdom could be questioned because then he could possibly let in the king's enemies. The office of a watchman came with certain qualifications. However, it's a bit different with us. For scripture teaches us that regardless of your qualifications, God has appointed you as the watchman over your heart. And it's like this with almost every one of God's callings, isn't it? God didn't say to Israel while they were in Egypt, in order to become my people, you must first be this and be that. No, he redeemed them. He delivered them and then gave them his laws and instructions. When Jesus called the 12 apostles, he didn't look for qualified men with impressive resumes. Our God does not call the qualified He qualifies the called. He doesn't seek those who are equipped. He equips those after whom he seeks. Even from a big picture of salvation perspective, God did not choose us because we were holy and blameless. But as Ephesians 1, 4 says, he chose us in order that we might become holy and blameless. He didn't foreknow us and predestine us because we resembled the image of his son. He foreknew us and predestined us in order that we might become conformed to the image of his son. And when it comes to this all important office of being watchmen of the heart, God has appointed you to this office regardless of your qualifications or how equipped you are, or how equipped you think you are. He appoints you as the guardian of your heart, and then by his word and through his spirit, equips you, instructs you, and begins to train you. He begins to qualify you and make you competent for the task to which he's appointed you. He places you on the watchtower overlooking your heart. He gives you his word, and he says to you, Here's everything you need to know for life and godliness. This is able to make you wise. You will do well to pay attention to my word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Everything in this is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if at any point you find yourself lacking wisdom, just ask of me and I'll give it to you. 
guard your heart. And the first thing in terms of the kind of watchman we, we must be is this. We must live in the fear of God. We must live in the fear of God. In order to keep and maintain our hearts, we must ensure that we, as the people of God, are living in the fear of God. It is so sad today that this reality has almost entirely disappeared from the lips and lives of so many people who claim to be Christians. And I would submit to you that the reason the fear of God is absent in so many pews is because it's absent in so many pulpits. God is no longer seen as the majesty of heaven. He is simply viewed as a means of finding meaning and purpose. As we glance across the landscape of evangelicalism today, we see the word of God trifled with instead of trembled at. Jesus isn't regarded as the exalted Lord of heaven and earth before whom we all must fall. Instead, he is treated as a kind of heavenly boyfriend to fall in love with. He isn't preached as the conquering king who came to crush the head of the serpent, but as one who, as Beth Moore said recently, is trying to get her to have a crush on him. In an attempt to be more relevant to our increasingly godless culture, so many desperate churches have reshaped and refashioned God in the image and likeness of man. And as a result, we have been stripped of the fear of God. In this book of practical wisdom, the book of Proverbs, the fear of God is not a peripheral or secondary issue. It's paramount. It's primary the Proverbs teach us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are told that whoever walks in uprightness, it's because he fears the Lord. Proverbs fourteen twenty seven says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. We're told in Proverbs 16, verse 6, that by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Proverbs 28, 14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Great Gain of Godliness, said, The fear of God is the sum of all true religion. And he quotes Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When a Christian can say little of faith, and perhaps nothing of assurance. Yet he dares not deny that he fears God. Watson goes on, God is so great that the Christian is afraid of displeasing him, and so good that he is afraid of losing him. To fear God is to know your place in the universe. 
The fear of the Lord is an abiding awareness that you are finite, you are created, you are sustained by a power outside of yourself, and that you live beneath the gaze of a God who is eternal and uncreated. The fear of God is an awareness that the breath you breathe and the life you have, they exist because of his sovereign will. To fear God is to be filled with the awareness that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing and that his presence permeates and fills all of heaven and all of earth. It's knowing that he is infinitely righteous and immaculately pure and indescribably holy without sin, without flaw, without even a trace of evil and that you by nature are unrighteous and impure and full of sin, full of flaws and nothing but evil, and yet he still allows you to live in his universe. To fear God is to know that in spite of your countless sins that have mounted up to the heavens, he hasn't killed you in your sleep. To fear God is to fear sinning against him. It's to fear his judgment, but also his loving discipline. To, to fear God is, is, is so unique in that it makes you at first want to hide from God like Adam, but even more so, it makes you want to say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? Or to say with Moses, please show me your glory. The fear of God drives a person to God. The fear of God makes a person fear the outpouring of his wrath, but also makes a person fear the loss of his favor. It makes a person afraid of being separated from his love and being banished from the light of his countenance. It makes a Christian afraid of being separated from his grace and his goodness. And it makes the true child of God terrified of standing before God without the righteous robe of the righteousness of Christ. This is the same God who asked in Jeremiah 30, who would dare of himself to approach me? And in Job 41.10, who then is he who can stand before me? Richard Allain, in his book, Heaven Opened, wrote, to fear God is to have the awe of God abiding upon the heart, to be under a sense of the majesty and glory of the Lord shining forth in all his attributes especially in his holiness and omniscience. The glory of his holiness and the sense of such a holy eye upon the soul strikes it with dread and consternation or a holy anxiety. If we are to adequately guard our hearts, we must be men and women, boys and girls, who above everything else have the fear of God in our hearts. And by the way, this is a gift this is a gift that God gives to each and every one of his new covenant people. Listen to Jeremiah 32, verses 39 and 40. God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. In his book, The Forgotten Fear, 
Albert Martin underscores three key ingredients of the fear of God. That is, three categories of biblical truth that ought to be present in our lives if we are to live in the fear of God. Number one, he says we must have correct concepts of the character of God. We must know the attributes of God and meditate upon the attributes of God regularly. Secondly, we must have a pervasive sense of the presence of God to live with an abiding awareness that everything we do happens and takes place before his face. His eyes test the children of man. His eyelids watch over everything we do. We are never alone. He is always with us. Everything we do takes place before his presence. And thirdly, he says, we must have a constraining awareness of our obligations to God, to be aware of all that we are called to do and be before him. We are called to love him supremely, to obey him implicitly, and to trust him completely. As you and I stand as watchmen over our hearts, we must pray the prayer of Psalm 8611, where where David prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. If we truly live in the fear of God, we'll be extra cautious with what we allow into our hearts and what we allow our hearts to be filled with. Well, secondly, in terms of the kind of watchman we must be, we must be attentive to the word of God. We must be attentive to the word of God. The work of an ancient watchman wasn't limited to what he could see, but what he could hear off in the distance. And in the same way, if we are to be effective in guarding our hearts, we must have ears that are attentive to the word of God. Look with me down again at Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Look down at verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. The author is calling his son to pay close attention to his words. God demands and has every right to our undivided attention. Now, I get that you and I have our various callings and vocations, and I never, ever want to take away from that in this pulpit. I don't want you to get the idea that God expects all of us to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week before an open Bible. We know that's not the case. However, it is possible that no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing or who you're dealing with, It's possible to have his word stored up in your heart as that word that ultimately speaks louder than every other word that you hear in your daily business. And God calls us to be men and women who are attentive to his words above everything else. If not, the writer of Hebrews warns us about the art of drifting He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
The key to not drifting in your mind and in your heart, that's where it all begins. The key to not drifting is paying much closer attention to what you have heard in the word of God regarding the gospel of God, regarding the attributes of God, regarding the kingdom of God, regarding God himself. We are told in the parable of the sower that Satan's ploy is to steal the word from our hearts. We are told that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things have the potential to enter our hearts and choke the word so as to prevent it from bearing fruit in our lives. One of the often repeated sayings of our Lord was, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And yet on one occasion, he went further than that. He said to his disciples, take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. In other words, God isn't just concerned that we hear his word, but how we hear his word. He's concerned with how we hear his truth. In the days leading up to Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians, the people would gather around to listen to the word of God as it was delivered by the prophet Ezekiel. But I want you to listen to how God describes the way in which they listened to his word coming through the prophet. God said to the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 33, beginning in verse 30, As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. The prophet hears God telling him, they gather before you as if they're my people. They listen to everything you have to say, but their hearts are not set on doing any of it. They're there to be entertained. They view you as one who's showing off on an instrument. They heard Ezekiel in order to be entertained. They didn't listen with the intent of acting upon Ezekiel's words. And it's no wonder why James, the brother of our Lord, exhorted his readers, saying, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, self-deception enters into the heart when all we do is hear the word. And there's never any acting upon the word. It's so easy to come in and hear and take in and take notes. And if that's all you're doing, Scripture says you're deceived. You're not a doer of the word. You're not implementing the word. You're not putting into practice what you were hearing. You're not, you're not causing the word to bear fruit in, in your life. You're not allowing the word, rather, to bear fruit in your life. We're told that when Moses was delivering God's word to the people of Israel, just before bringing them into the promised land, he said to them, Take to heart 
all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law for it is no empty word for you but your very life. Moses says these words from God are your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. How much more Now that we have the full revelation and whole counsel of God, can God say to us, my word is your very life. As we remain attentive to the words of God, binding them on our hearts and tying them around our necks, as Proverbs chapter 6 teaches us, we have the promise of Proverbs 6.22, which says that when you walk, his words will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, his words will talk with you. Our Lord Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to be attentive to the word of God. We are told of him in Isaiah 50 and verse 4. The Lord God has given me, speaking of Christ, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. And now listen to this. Morning by morning, he awakens. He, God, awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. This prophecy of Christ in Isaiah 50 portrays Christ as when he would come in the flesh as day by day, morning by morning, the father opening his his ear and the son opening his ear to receive all the father had for him that day. If we are to be effective watchmen looking over our hearts, we must be people who are attentive to the word of God. That means we're constantly exposed to the word of God. Bible intake is a regular thing. Bible listening is a regular thing. Bible preaching is a regular thing. Well, thirdly, if you and I are to succeed in keeping and rightly managing our hearts as divinely appointed watchmen, thirdly, we must be prayerfully dependent upon God. We must be prayerfully dependent upon God. I mentioned that God doesn't expect us to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week before an open Bible, nor does he expect us to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week on our knees in our prayer closets. That's not what we're called to do. That's not what I mean by being attentive to the word of God. However, what God does call us to is to keep the channel of communion with him open at all times. The channel of prayer open at all times. It sounds like an easy thing, but it's not an easy thing. Sin gets in the way. The thoughts of the flesh get in the way. Distractions get in the way. But scripture calls us to pray without ceasing, to pray constantly. Ephesians six eighteen calls us to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to keep alert, with all perseverance. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says that if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. How do we maintain a constant communion with God? By walking in the light as he is in the light. Walking in righteousness, walking in holiness, walking in confession of our sin keeping short accounts with God, not allowing your conscience to be 
bruised and broken throughout the day to where it, by the end of the day, it just, it just wants, wants to go to bed. Be quick to confess your sins. Be quick to confess your need for God's grace. Be quick to confess your need for help. It's interesting in Psalm 73, when Asaph is undergoing his crisis and seeing the prosperity of the wicked, he comes to the realization in verse 23 that he has been continually with God. That's the fact of the matter, friends, is that in Christ, we are continually with him. I love the way he says that. He doesn't just say, nevertheless, you are continually with me, though we know that's the case. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Jesus called us to watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation. As we man the walls of our hearts, we must be men and women who are constantly in prayer, constantly in communion with the God of light. J.C. Ryle said that if we know anything of true religion, let us never forget this lesson. If we desire to walk with God comfortably and not fall like David or Peter, let us never forget to watch and pray. Let us live like men on enemy's ground and be always on our guard. We cannot walk too carefully. We cannot be too jealous over our souls. The world is very ensnaring. The devil is very busy. Let our Lord's words ring in our ears daily like a trumpet. Our spirits may sometimes be very willing, but our flesh is always very weak. Then let us always watch and always pray. As we man the walls of our hearts, let us remember that through Christ we have access by one spirit to the Father always. Let us remember that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Fourthly, if we are to succeed in guarding our hearts as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be sober before God. We must be sober before God. We're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that Paul says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul seems to indicate that spiritual intoxication has to do with you having higher thoughts of yourself that are just unworthy of you. He equates spiritual pride and intoxication to be the same thing. Let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but let us think soberly, meaning to be intoxicated is to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 calls us to be awake and be sober. We belong to the day. Let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Can you imagine a watchman out there watching over the city, watching for incoming enemies, and you see him staggering to and fro on that wall, and you come to find out that he's intoxicated, he's drunk, he's in no place to guard the city. He's in no place to make sound decisions. He's in no place to sound the alarm to let the, the city know of incoming enemies. 
And yet, how easy it is for us as Christians who are manning the walls of our hearts to be intoxicated with pride, to be intoxicated with the cares of this present evil age. Peter calls us to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Your spiritual sobriety feeds into a healthy prayer life. You being spiritually sober makes you a fruitful, prayerful person. Peter also says, be sober-minded and watchful because you have an adversary seeking to devour you. Obviously, Peter is referring to spiritual soberness. But we know that there are certain things that take place in the physical realm that can hinder our spiritual sobriety. For one, lust and sexual sin have a way of making you spiritually drunk like a staggering man on that wall. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20, the, the writer addresses his son saying, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Do you see this adultery began in the heart? This spiritual intoxication took place in the heart. He was spiritually drunk in his heart with this woman. But we also know that physical drunkenness can also play a role in spiritual drunkenness. For example, when you drink a little bit too much, your powers of discernment are turned off. Your ability to make sound decisions departs from you. Your ability to make godly decisions flees from you. Proverbs chapter 7, look at this with me, verse 24. Proverbs 7, 24. He says, and now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. When you are spiritually intoxicated, your heart can begin to go down different paths that will eventually lead you to sin. Note that verse. Your heart goes down the path of sin before your members of your body. Your heart goes down first. And I'm arguing here that if you are physically drunk, physically intoxicated, you are likely to let your guard down and let that heart go down dark paths, dark alleys to where you find yourself in the chambers of death. God calls us to be spiritually sober. Fifthly, if we're to succeed in keeping and rightly managing our hearts as divinely appointed watchmen over them, we must be people who are satisfied in God. People who are satisfied, watchmen who are satisfied in God. Our hearts, friends, were made to be satisfied. Our hearts were fashioned with the capacity of being filled and full. Our hearts were made for satisfaction. And idolatry is when they seek out satisfaction in created realities and not in our creator God. That's what idolatry is. 
when our hearts are satisfied in God, we are more likely to guard that satisfaction lest anything enter in or rise up that could jeopardize that satisfaction in him. This is why David committed adultery with Bathsheba as he was wandering around on his roof that day. He sees this woman bathing. Lust rises up in his heart. He calls her. He commits adultery with her. Has her husband killed? But in his prayer of repentance that we find in Psalm 51, we discover something that David had lost. Listen to Psalm 51, verse 7. He cries out to God saying, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And now listen, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David had lost the joy of his salvation. He had ceased from drawing water with joy out of the wells of salvation. And when you cease to drink of the plethora of pleasures that we have in God, that heart begins to look elsewhere for satisfaction. And anywhere other than God will leave you broken, will leave you in sin, will leave you dark, destitute, deprived of all goodness. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has the fear of God rests satisfied. Psalm 23. I can't think of another psalm that addresses the godly man or the godly woman's satisfaction the way it does here. Where does true satisfaction come from? It comes from understanding that the Lord is your shepherd, your provider, your protector, your sustainer, your defender, the one who will lead you and guide you into paths of righteousness, who will follow you, who will go after you when you stray. I shall not want, he says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort you, comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and listen to this. If this does not sound like satisfaction, I don't know what does. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we are to be watchmen watching over our hearts, we must be people who remain and fight for satisfaction in God, who remain satisfied in God, and who fight to maintain our satisfaction in God. It's a fight every day. In fact, I would contend that the fight of faith that Paul talks about is a fight to remain satisfied in him, a fight to remain in the awareness that our cup truly does overflow. It's never half empty. It's never half full. It's always overflowing. 
Psalm 116 verse 12 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. We are to remain satisfied in God. What else, what else can satisfy you, truly? We thank God for the good gifts in this life. We thank God for family, for spouses, for children, for the joys of food and community and friendship and warmth and, and love and, and all of that. But at the end, that's all creature love that can never replace the love that can only come from your creator, the fullness that comes from him. Well, sixth, if we are to succeed in keeping our hearts, we must be humble before God. As we man the walls of our hearts, we must be men and women up there on that wall who are humble enough to admit that we can fall, we can stray, we can err. But we are told that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We're told that in a number of places in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. We must be humble enough to know our weaknesses and to cling to God in light of those weaknesses. So often we want to portray ourselves in, 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 in a way that, that shows people that we, we don't have any vulnerabilities, we don't have any weaknesses. When people ask us for prayer, we, 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 we make it seem as though we have everything all together. God gives grace, help, favor, the light of his countenance to people who are humble lowly, meek, dependent, needy. Friends, your greatest need is need. And to acknowledge that need, because when you have that acknowledgement, when you know that you're needy, you go to the one who fulfills and meets that need, and it's God. Imagine what pride could do to a watchman mounted up on a city's walls. Imagine the thoughts going through his mind. Nothing could ever penetrate this city. Look at this wall. I mean, a chariot. Horses could ride on top of this wall. Nothing could ever happen to this city. Nothing can conquer us. But we are told time and again in the Proverbs that pride is what causes a person to let their guard down. Oh, I can handle this sin. I can handle playing with this. I can handle watching this. I, can, I know when to stop. I know when to put the drink down. I can, I, 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 I. The problem is that it keeps coming back to I. And when you're there, you're right in the middle. Do you realize that I is right in the middle of pride? It's you. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low. We're told that the reason the wicked don't seek God is because the pride of his face. I think a good place to be is Psalm 131, verse 1, where the psalmist says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. We're to be people who are humble, lowly before God. It's easy to become proud, but really it at the same time, it's kind of easy, if you think about it, to become humble, to be humble, to think of who you are and what you are and who God is and what he is. To think of his attributes, to think of the fact that he is all-powerful and that he never changes. 
He's never new. He's never old. He's always the same. Infinitely glorious. Indescribably beautiful. Able to take our breath away with one glimpse of his glory. And yet we, in and of ourselves, are nothing but sin. That any good that we have is a gift of his. Any righteousness that we have is a gift from him. That humbles us. Well, seventh, if we are to succeed in keeping our hearts, we must be watchmen who walk in the wisdom of God. We must be people who walk in the wisdom of God. That means we rightly apply the truth of God to our daily situations and our temptations. Wisdom points us away from ourselves. Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. The wise of heart will receive commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We seem to keep coming back to this theme. If we are to walk in wisdom, we must fear God because the fear of God is the beginning of how to implement God's truth in our situations. We begin to reason like Joseph when he had every, I mean, think about that that temptation. No one's in the palace. Potiphar's wife takes hold of his garment. She's ready to lie with him. And do you remember what, what flashed in his mind? How can I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, the application of wisdom right there in the heat of temptation came because of the fear of God. We must be people who walk in wisdom, who pray for wisdom, who seek wisdom like silver and search for it like gold. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We are told that the spirit of the Lord is a spirit of wisdom. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter one that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We must be people who walk in wisdom, who pray for wisdom. You see, it's something that God is ready to give, more ready to give than we are to ask. James chapter one says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously without regret, without reproach. Well, eighth, we must be people who are pure before God, pure before God. And what I mean by pure and what I think scripture means by pure is a people who are of one substance inside. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I've used the illustration before, but when we talk about pure water, we're talking about the fact that there's one thing in that water bottle and it's water. There's not any additives. There's not any preservatives. It's pure water as far as we can tell, right? And if we are to be pure before God, we are to be people who are are of one substance within us. We have one purpose One desire, our chief aim and our goal is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to please him in all that we do, 
to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the one thing, is I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's my one reason for existence. I died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, I set my mind on things above. We're people of one substance, We are told in Psalm 101, verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. You want to know how to be pure? Ponder the way that is blameless. Ponder the way that is blameless. Think about what it would be like to have your way blameless, to have your time with your family blameless, to have the time when you're at work blameless, the time when you're with your friends to be blameless. Oh, he says, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. That's a pure heart that wants nothing of evil, nothing of perversity. That's why scripture calls us to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Purity of heart is cultivated in a community of pure people. Not perfect people, we're talking about pure people. People who want the same thing. People who long to see God glorified. People who long to see sin mortified. Holiness, righteousness, purity is a community project. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in so doing, we find that he purifies our hearts. We are to fight to keep our hearts of one substance, not divided, not divided into three and four and five. We're to be one person within. As we wrap up ninth, if we were to succeed in keeping our hearts, we must be people who were steadfast before God steadfast before God. In Psalm 108, verse 1, the psalmist says, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. The idea is immovable. To know who you are. If you're to be a watchman up there on the wall of your heart, guarding your heart, you're to know who you are in Christ. You're to know where you stand in terms of God and in terms of eternity. You're to know that you rejoice in hope of the glory of God and you stand in grace. You stand under the favor of God. You're to know that you have the Spirit of God within you as a deposit, a guarantee of the day of redemption. You're to know that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You're to know who you are and you're to know whose you are. God, the God of the universe, is jealous over you, jealous for you, to protect you, to defend you, to not share you with any other idol. 
Psalm 112 talks about a steadfast person. He's not afraid of bad news because his heart is firm, trusting in Yahweh. The prayer of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You can apply that prayer at any given moment. Lord, direct my hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. James 5.8 calls us to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that classic verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We are to be people who are steadfast, to know that God has set our feet upon the rock of Christ, and he will not allow us to be moved. Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And lastly, if we are to be a people who are effective in guarding our hearts, we must be armed with the armor of God. Can you imagine a watchman without armor? Can you imagine him without a sense of readiness for battle? And for this, I point you to Ephesians chapter 6 as we conclude today. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. As Paul wraps up the epistle to the Ephesians, he has reminded them of their identity in Christ. He has reminded them that they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He has reminded them that they were dead, but now they are alive in Christ. They've been raised with Christ, saved by grace, brought into the family of God. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We are to be men and women who are equipped with everything God supplies us with for war. There's never a time for us to let our guard down. We are to walk in truth. We are to walk in righteousness. We are to walk in prayer. We are to walk with the helmet of salvation guarding our minds. We're to walk satisfied in God and the fear of God. 
in the wisdom of God. Notice how all of these points revolve around God, walking in the fear of God, walking in the wisdom of God, being humble before God, being sober before God. Everything we do in the Christian life is before God. We have a phrase in the Latin, quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. As Christians, we live before his face. Everything you do takes place before his face. He fills heaven and earth. In our folly, we think that we are somehow isolated and alone and separated from him. But I want you to understand that he sees everything that's happening, even in your heart and mind right now. And everything you do now and do later will take place before him. And the realization of that will help you as a watchman to guard and to keep and to to, to hold your heart in your care and in your custody, knowing that God is before you, that you are with him, that he is with you. As Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord, the eye of Yahweh, is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. This is, this is who God dwells with. Listen to Isaiah 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And now listen, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. This kind of wraps it all up. We are people who fear God, who are attentive to the word of God, who are humble and contrite before God. And as we posture ourselves in that manner, we have the gaze, we have the promise of God's gaze upon us to help us, to deliver us, to comfort us, to raise us, to satisfy us and sanctify us and eventually glorify us. Let's pray.